Good morning, y'all. My name is Brandon, and I am so glad to be back with y'all this morning, and I thank you so much for giving uh, our family a chance to scoot away for a couple of days, uh, but I missed you last week, but I was not not with you. I can still participate with this live stream thing we've got going, and so any of you who are still represented in that little box in the back of the room, uh, welcome to y'all this morning as well. I know Scott did that earlier, but I was particularly grateful last week for what, uh, as much as I loathe about the pandemic, uh, we have uh, diversified how we can come together as a congregation, and it was good to be with you last week. I, I don't have this in my notes, but I could not help but think as, uh, and by the way, if you did not get the elements for the Lord's Supper uh, for communion coming up and I'm near the end of our time together, just meander to the back of the room and get that. You won't distract me at at all, but uh, we want you to have those. And if you're at home and haven't gathered those yet, um, gather whatever you can find at home so you can participate as well when we come uh, to the table together in a little bit. But I couldn't help but think as we sang, I love you, Lord, Oksana, um, about this little uh, scrawny. I wasn't actually that scrawny in seventh grade. I was actually kind of pudgy, but um, standing at 7 a.m. in my high school, I guess middle school, middle and high school were together in my small town. Uh, and I was asked to address our FCA group. It's kind of the, I was the preacher's kid in town, so that was a natural one to ask, I guess. But I was glad to do it because even at that age, I had birthed within me this desire to tell people about Jesus and the love that I had for Jesus uh, to that point. And for whatever reason that day, uh, I, w- I grew up as a singer, uh, you know, the, the baritone in town that could carry somewhat of a tune. So I sang at a lot of weddings growing up. And so I was starting to, to do that. And Oksana, I just launched into that chorus uh, at the FCA meeting uh, to pray uh, over what I was about to, to say. And so you may know the, the psalmist uh, says, may the words of my mouth and meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord. And we often use that as a prayer before we um, preach or, or say anything on God's behalf, opening God's word together, but that chorus works uh, as well. So a particularly good prayer before we open God's word together. So thank you for that and for all the music this morning. What a blessing it is to be with you and more and more of you each week who are feeling more comfortable to come together. I am grateful for that. Uh, it was a joy to worship with you and to continue doing so. We are in Luke 22 this morning. And each week that we come together and open God's Word, um, I want it to be a word of comfort and hope for all of us who are listening because there is so much fear and there is so much pain that we see each week, whether it's just turning on the news, scrolling through our feeds, it is inescapable. And as Pastor Rich Viotis, who I love to, uh, to read and to follow, says, we cannot go a week without hearing a concrete word of hope from God. We cannot. And so that is why we gather. Now, there is some good news out there. There is. There is love to be found. There is love to be shared. I do see good things during the week. I don't think I could be able to survive if I didn't. And I hope that you are seeing it as well. Because juxtaposed with it, there is so much bad. And we saw that this week when we unfortunately saw, uh, you know, lives taken in mass. And we pray 
for those affected and those indirectly affected to the killings in Atlanta, not very far from here. And coming off what we experienced on Christmas Day, we know that this is all too close to home, and we long for a day as those who follow and are being formed by Jesus, where there are no more stories like this, yet we live in the in-between time, as we talk about so often. And so there are these stories, and there is this call, this very, very real call on our lives to be light amongst the darkness. And I pray that you sense that call upon your life this morning, even in the midst of such bad news. And the good, whatever good there is, is derived from Jesus alone, from what God has done in and is doing through Jesus. We, we talk a lot about gospel conversations. If you're new here, you'll hear that term often, and I hope that you do. We want to be participating in gospel conversations. I want you to be intent upon having them, upon uh, meeting new people and desiring to tell them about the hope that you have in Jesus. But we must keep in mind that these conversations are not about getting someone to agree with us, as if we are checking a box off and making sure that their thinking is aligned with our thinking so we get some kind of, I don't know, vaccine card that we keep in our wallet that tells us where we're going when we die. I'm looking forward to heaven. Don't you hear me wrong? There's a lot between now and then, and these gospel conversations are so much more about allowing space for someone to encounter Jesus. And if we are not encountering Jesus, we can't lead someone else to encounter Jesus. So that's so much about what we're doing together each Sunday morning that we gather. That is as big a reason as any that is important for us together at a common time, in a common space, to reflect on just what God has done and is doing. So we're continuing in our journey in Luke's gospel. We're in chapter 22 today. I may have mentioned that already, but if you have your Bibles, I hope you do, turn there. And we find ourselves this morning two weeks away from Resurrection Sunday. Do you realize that? Easter is two weeks away. And so much of what I love about uh, preaching uh, is wrapped up in the Easter message. As a pastor, I so look forward to that day and having been at this several years now, I, I, I do. I look forward to, you know, fewer empty pews, uh, seats in the pews and, and, and added services to allow, you know, more options for folks. Yet here we are a year later and this pandemic persists, y'all, right? We're still dealing with it. And many of us are not yet comfortable enough to come back together and we won't be by Easter, but that is okay. Okay, but it's also hard, right? And I'm feeling this, particularly this morning, as we look forward to, uh, to Easter. And I hope you hear my heart in this. I mean, I'm, I'm as given to worldly things as anybody you could put in this position. I'm not free from it, from it but my heart is really not to, to, to attain fame in this role or to, or to fill these seats up fill the, you know, online seats up to make me look better or to make our church look greater. It really isn't, but I'm still compelled by those things. But so much of this last year has put into focus just how difficult all of this can be. I mean, even just the mask 
situation has been really hard. And I get it. Some of you hate them. I don't mind them. But it's been hard to navigate that conversation. And it, it, it reminds me, you know, so much of what Jesus is doing in Luke 22 at the table is, is, is hearkening back, is, is putting before himself and the disciples the traditions of the Israelites, of the Jewish people, from where they have, have come. And, and many of you know there are all these laws that govern just how, you know, Jesus and the disciples understood what it was like to follow God. And you can find them all through the Torah in the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And you have these laws. And, and oftentimes these laws, would they would bump up against one another. Your donkey falls in a hole on, on the Sabbath day. Well, it's work to get the donkey out, but it's also inhumane to, get, to not get the donkey out. So what do you do, right? And so there were these teachers of the law that would help explain how you would... That was a really random example, by the way, the donkey in the hole. But there were these teachers that would help people understand which laws were more weighty than the other. And that's been a big part of what has been so hard about this last year is we have been put in a situation where we are evaluating this and that, what is best. And so much about our lives following and being formed by Jesus is just this. And the beauty of the local church and what we are called to is to be able to lovingly have these conversations amongst ourselves in a way that edifies one another, encourages one another, leads us to a place of understanding while also not believing we have it all figured out, but then moving forward and following Jesus together and attracting others to do it alongside us. In some ways, we've done that very well in the last year. In some ways, we've fallen, I've fallen, woefully, woefully short. And I hope you hear me and that we can do better as we move forward. At this time last year, we were beginning the lockdown quarantine. President Trump was saying that he hoped things would be back open by Easter, which was April the 12th, Last year, we all hoped that it would be, but none of us knew exactly what we were dealing with in COVID-19. Scientists were grimly predicting as many as a million folks could die in our country. And a year later, we have surpassed half of that. And some of us believe that actual number is overblown. Some of us believe that actual number falls short of what is actual. But what, is, what we cannot refute is that that number, whatever it is, is large enough to have touched our community, our families. We have not escaped the economic fallout. We have not escaped this virus. The only thing that we have had and continue to have for sure during all this is one another and God. And I pray that we have been able to cling to the truth that we are hashtag never alone. I have tried to say that enough. I'm not sure that I could have. And I felt the parallels As we have walked through Luke together over the last few weeks, I have felt the parallels in our last year on earth together with the disciples as they have followed and and, and watched Jesus minister. Jesus has told them three different times what is about to befall him, the story that we will retell over the next two weeks, that he is going to Jerusalem and what will happen to him when he is there. And they just didn't get it. They weren't quite hearing him. But even, even what he wasn't explicitly saying, the way that he was moving and, and, and ministering and, and teaching, it was also telling a story, a story that was unfolding, a 
story that was teaching us to reject earthly pleasures when they stand in the way of us following and being formed by Jesus that was, as we looked at last week. And I'm so grateful for Bill being with us and preaching such a good sermon. It was fun to hear a good sermon. Being extremely generous. A few weeks ago, we looked at the story of, of Jesus encouraging us not to build barns for our excess, but rather to see that excess as an opportunity to share with one another and to give abundantly. And then on top of that, realizing that our propensity to stray, to not always hit the mark, to go our own way, to live selfishly, it never renders us too far from the love of God, the Father, right? We can always come home. Now, this is the backdrop for where we find ourselves this week with the disciples and with Jesus around a very familiar table at the time of Passover, but at a very unique time in the history of the world. There has never been a time like the time we find in Luke 22. This was no ordinary Passover meal. This was the meal that would come to be known as Jesus's last with his disciples, the last Passover meal that Jesus, the good Jewish boy turned powerful rabbi would ever have before his death. So let's look together at the text in Luke 22. Actually, going to begin in verse 7. Luke 22, verse 7. Then the day of unleavened bread came when the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Well, where do you want to prepare it? They asked him. Listen, he said to them, when you enter the city, a man carrying a water jug will meet you. Follow him in the house he enters. Tell the owner of the house, the teacher asks you, where is the guest room where I can eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large furnished room upstairs. Make the preparations there. So they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Verse 14. When the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And then he said to them, I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup. And after giving thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I tell you, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. He took bread, gave thanks, broke it gave it to them and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he he also took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But, But look, the hand of the one betraying me is at the table with me. For the Son of Man will go away as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. So they began to argue among themselves which of them it could be who was going to do it. May God add God's blessing to the reading of God's word. The Passover meal is literally a religious uh, festival, observance. It's still practiced today, and it commemorates God delivering the Jews from bondage in Egypt. Uh, I think it's important to go back and and look in Exodus chapter 6. 
verses 6 and 7, the text reads, Therefore, tell the Israelites, I'm the Lord. This is God speaking. And I will bring you out from the forced labor of the Egyptians and rescue you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. You will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from the forced labor of the Egyptians. The meal, it celebrates and remembers. It remembers four elements of what God has done and is doing. And I think they're elements worthy of our consideration this morning. First of all, God took the Israelites out of harm's way, out of Egypt. And God saved them. And God redeemed them. And then God set them apart. God took them as God's very own people. Now Jesus with the disciples in our text in Luke 22, is is reinterpreting this this festival meal. Jesus is actually clarifying it. Now, all those laws I told you about, Jesus would have known all of them. And and his, his testimony about who he was and what he was doing, if you remember from Matthew chapter 5, was that Jesus didn't come to abolish all of those laws or the law itself didn't come to abolish what the prophets had said about what God was doing, but Jesus came to actually fulfill the law, to make it complete. And there's a huge part of that going on here in this important meal. The belief among the Jews uh, for years and years and years was that the celebration of the Passover would come to its completion in a Messiah who would come to redeem once and for all, who would conquer death and sin, sin and death for good. And the imagined MO, mode of operation of this Messiah was often a militaristic one. After all, the Passover itself commemorates a time in history where every firstborn male, people and animals were were struck down and killed. Exodus 12, verse 12 says, I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and strike every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, both people and animals. I'm the Lord. I will execute judgment, judgments against all the gods of Egypt. The blood on the houses where you are staying will be a distinguishing mark for you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. No plague will be among you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. But y'all, Jesus is not militaristic. He's just not. If he were, the story that we've been, you know, reading through and reminding one another of the last few weeks, it it has rendered many occasions where Jesus could have acted this way. I mean, perhaps you could go all the way back to when he was a child and King Herod felt like Jesus was on his corner and he kept hearing about the king of the Jews. And so King Herod had every firstborn male killed and Jesus had to escape to Egypt. And when the soldiers got to his house, he wasn't there. Because they had escaped, rendering Jesus a refugee, which is really interesting. Or, when Jesus didn't come to defend John the Baptist, when John the Baptist's life was taken from him, Matthew chapter 11. Or, from a couple weeks ago, Jesus didn't take the bait when James and John were really ticked off that the Samaritan village didn't allow them to just come on in and show them hospitality. And James and John said, Jesus, let's rain down some fire on this. Let's decimate this whole city, this town. Jesus said no, because it's time we realize that the Messiah, Jesus, is not a sword-wielding 
military leader. He's not that kind of king. He didn't even have a place to call his own, to lay his head down, much less an earthly palace. Even this room where they are getting together to have this all-important meal is a room that they borrowed. We just read that. That doesn't mean Jesus is weak. It just doesn't mean that Jesus is weak. Jesus is the most powerful leader to ever live, the most powerful man to ever live. His life and ministry demonstrates an understanding that true power is not found in the forceful demonstration of it. Rather, true power is found in restraint. There was a four-star General Stilwell Korea, I believe, who attended a prayer breakfast with his soldiers. And he was talking with the visiting pastor who spoke. This was an American general. He was talking with the visiting pastor who had spoken at the breakfast after it was over. And the general said, Pastor, I want you to pray for us. Pastor said, of course I will. General, you know, you know I will. The general said, now don't pray for power. Don't pray for more power. We have plenty of that. We could crush this whole place. In one afternoon, pray that we would have appropriate restraint. The general understood that America was built on this understanding of power, restraint, checks and balances within government, term limits, the commander of our armies being a a civilian, all appropriate measures to render restraint. And Jesus understands restraint. He sits at this dinner and says, one of you is going to betray me. He's not angry. He's extremely matter of fact. And you know what? Read in between the lines. He still loves Judas and will forgive him. Later that night, they're going to find themselves in the garden. And Peter, bless his heart, always ready. He's going to chop a soldier's ear off. Because he thinks it's time to fight. Or he's wondering if it is. And Jesus says, no. This is not how this is going to go. Because true power is found in restraint. In sacrifice. In suffering. And that is where Jesus is heading. To his very own suffering. To make good on this promise given so many years before to the Israelites, that God took the Israelites out of harm's way, that God saved them, that God redeemed them, and that God set them apart to be God's people. But before he does this, he is going to share this meal with his disciples, those who have been with him. He wants to share the bread. He wants to share the cup with them. Again, the Passover meal commemorated the covenant made by God to the Israelites And Jesus' blood, as Jesus says here, seals a new covenant offering, a, a new kind of freedom that God will take all of us out of harm's way, away from sin and death, that God will save us, that God will redeem us to all who believe, all Jews and Gentiles, everyone, anyone. 
Those who share in this covenant, who eat of this meal, who drink this cup, we are joined together. We are one family. We are disciples of Jesus bound together by this meal, by this cup, by the very blood of Jesus. I mean, this was so important, so important for the Apostle Paul who wrote so much of our New Testament. He understood this and he tried so hard and so well to get the early congregations in the church to understand this, to understand that we were all members of one another. And I can't say that enough to you today. And this last year has taxed that so much that we would be able to remember that we are members of one another. I continually remember this great quote from Wendell Berry that I've shared with you before from his short story, The Birds. It says, the way we are, we are members of each other. All of us, everything. And the difference ain't in who is a member and who's not, but who knows it and who don't. Do you know that you belong? Do you know that you belong? That you are a member? (sighs) Folks on death row, many of you probably know, uh, are granted a last meal. And, And as I understand it, they're able to choose what that meal is. And this is something that gets quite a bit of press. There's a lot of articles written about this. It's likely something that you're aware of. But whatever the reason may be that this is uh, so well known, we, we tend to have a fascination with uh, the last meal of a person condemned to die. Maybe it's in some ways connected to the same impulses that, that caused folks to congregate often joyously around lynchings or hangings. We cannot be sure. What I am sure of is that I have been so blessed in this life. And I eat what I want to eat pretty much whenever I want to eat it. I have never imagined sitting down in front of a meal, which is so often food that I am excited about eating, and imagined wondered if it would be the last time I would ever get to eat it. You know, it's, it's uh, I, I love this time of year, March Madness, and I have uh, gotten over Belmont not being picked for either the NCAA or the NIT tournament. I promise I've moved on. I'm still not harboring any resentment. I remember when I was in school and I was there, and uh, we, we won our first uh, big-time game, our first money game. You go and play the bigger schools, Belmont's becoming one of those, you know, bigger mid-majors, so this it's getting harder to schedule the good teams. But Missouri agreed to play us, and we whipped them. It was great on their home floor. It was the first big-time win that we had had. This was back in 99 or 2000. I can't remember. And, you know, if you know Coach Bird uh, at Belmont, he's big buddies with Vince Gill. So I got to know Vince being in the program, and, Name drop. Vince is a really nice guy. And Vince took us all to Morton's when we beat Missouri. I had never eaten at Morton's. I had never eaten at a place like Morton's. Uh, it was really good. I don't know if you've ever been to a, to a place like that. And I remember being brash enough to ask uh, Vince, because the meal was so extraordinary to me. And I remember asking him at dinner, I was like, could you eat like, like, you eat like this? Could you eat like this every meal? He was like, yes, I could. He didn't mean like he could afford it, although he can. But he meant like this is, this is awesome. It doesn't, doesn't get old. And I remember that being 
such a foreign thought. But you know, even more important than the quality of the food that night or at any particular meal that we have, what is so much more important and so much meaning, more meaningful than that. And what I even remember about that meal at Morton's, because I was there with all my teammates, right? Is the quality of the company. It's been over 350 days since our middle school son has been in a classroom with his classmates. He starts tomorrow. And it was just so cool to hear him say, yeah, Dad, I'm really excited about going back to school. Isn't that a far cry from what you would normally hear from a 12-year-old? But he's missed it, rubbing elbows with classmates, being just a few feet away from such gifted teachers who had devoted their professional lives to bringing along middle school students. He is so excited to go back, and Leslie Ann and I are so excited for him because we learn from watching one another, right? We learn from being with one another. We've taken the pandemic very seriously. And last night was the first time in over a year that we have gathered with friends, just another couple in their home and shared a meal. And it's been, you know, it's been a, it's been a long year and it kind of was thrown together and the kids were there and it was so fun, but it was indoors and we, we had food there, good food. And we, we stopped, we prayed together before we ate because we do. I hope you do. I hadn't done that in a year. And I, because I'm a crier, I cried because it was so meaningful. I missed that. I need that to lift one another up, to learn alongside one another, to break bread together in each other's presence. I need that. And of all that's going on in this scene in Luke 22, every bit of it, everything that Jesus is doing to fulfill the law and the prophets, all of the, yeah, the prophecy being fulfilled, it's there. And that is important. What is also going on there is Jesus is a man. And Jesus is with his friends and he knows he is about to die. And what he wants to do is sit with them. And even... The goober that decided 30 pieces of silver was worth betraying him is not going to keep Jesus from this company, from this time with the people that he loves. That's what's going on here. We are not designed to go at this alone. Jesus knows this and Jesus is modeling this for us. He sat down with his friends knowing it was his last meal. And because of what happens next, his betrayal, his arrest, his trials, his conviction, and his execution, he was right. But because he showed restraint and submitted to death on the cross, Because of that, well, we get to insert ourselves into this story at this table as a disciple, one who is following and being formed by Jesus. We get to assume the position of somebody that he wants to eat with. Do not miss that. 
Do not take that lightly, no matter how much bad news clogs up your news feed. It never will mean that you don't have a seat at that table. Ever. And if you're anything like me, that's not always at the top of my mind on a Wednesday morning or a Friday afternoon. There is a seat for you there. You will never have to wonder if this meal is your last. There is no last meal. There is room at the table for you and for anyone else. And Jesus is right there with us. We, I hope it hadn't become glib because we truly are never alone. So we will turn our attention to the elements and to the table that we have been invited to. We're going to take just a couple of minutes to to be still. I remind you often that silence is not nothing. And I don't want it to be awkward. Hold your elements. Take them. Don't open them yet. They're a little tricky. If you open the second film, it's just over. You've ruined I'm kidding. But just hold them. Consider what God has done. What God is doing. Let's pray together.